Another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream And you can Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world and the changing times and the things that we could all do to live a better life. If times get tough... Or even if they don't dictate it, it's almost always the case during my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas, from the personal mobile studio, 2006.5 Jetta Diesel TDI. And as always, I like to point out, this show is one man's view. It's another way of saying one man's opinion, so you are free to differ with me. You are encouraged to differ with me. I just may differ back. I find it amusing. Sometimes when people send me an email and go, Jack, you're wrong because da 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 da. And I send them an email back and go, No, I think I'm right because I'm, you know, blah 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 blah. And then they give me an email back with all kinds of hurt feelings, but you said it was okay to disagree with you. Yes, it's okay to disagree with me. It's okay for me to disagree with you too. That's how we're going to get somewhere in this crazy freaking world of ours. If we all have our own opinions, but beyond that, we all know why we believe what we believe. That's what it's really all about. So um, today's show, I'm going to continue with Q&A, questions and answers from the audience. uh, I'm I'm absolutely overwhelmed at how many questions came in and how many of them are really, really awesome questions. Uh, I would say right now I have about 50 questions in my uh, questions folder in my Outlook at the house, uh, not including the 10 that are sitting in front of me right now. So I could go through this week with nothing but questions again, and I, I probably won't do that, uh, but keep them coming. Remember, if you want to send me a question, jack at the com is my email, jack at the com, and put in the subject line question for Jack. That'll make sure that you get filed the right way. You won't get deleted when I'm, you know, getting rid of 85 emails I don't really need to read as fast as I can. Uh, before we do that, though, let's do some house cleaning. Number one, I want to let you guys know, I've got another article at lourockwell.com uh, published today. It's on survival gardening, and it's on a lot of the stuff that we talk about here, and it's a lot of the information that I've uh, accumulated over several different podcasts about potential food shortages. And um, I think it would be great if you guys took a look at it. So if you go to lourockwell.com today, and again, today is uh, Monday, June 1st, 2009, then you'll see it. If not, there will be a link in the show notes if you listen to this tomorrow or what have you. But go give that article a read. Uh, the folks over at Lou Rockwell, they track their reads, and I like being in their top ten. My article last week didn't get into the top ten, and I have a sneaking suspicion it's partly my own fault. I didn't tell you guys that there was an article up there by me last week. So uh, when I throw my uh, my audience on top of his audience, it tends to uh, trump things pretty well. The week before when I did it, my article was number one for the week. So uh, let's see if we can't send that article to some friends and family, too. Maybe the ones that are on the fringes, on the outskirts, and saying, I don't really know about this stuff. It uh, lends some credibility when they see it from someone that used to be, I don't know, a congressional chief of staff. So uh, next thing, uh, our advertisers. Make sure you check those guys out. Right-hand march to the show. You'll see their banners. Today's advertiser of the day is Tactical 
response gear. James Jaeger's operation. He has some really cool equipment and some really great training available. Check him out. Uh, next, if you think you get more than 25 cents in value per episode from the Survival Podcast, consider joining the Supporting Members Brigade. It'll help support the work we do here, and you'll get exclusive content available only to members. Wraps up the house cleaning, so let's rock on. And with intros and everything, 3 minutes, 54 seconds, not bad. I just thought the tact uh, the uh, house cleaning was wrapped up. This really isn't house cleaning, though. This is really part of the show as a whole. And uh, I think that uh, it's going to be a good resource for you guys. I got an email um, last week from a guy named Brian that runs a site called ITSTactical.com. And uh, he lives only a few miles away from me, and he wanted to know if maybe we could have some drinks sometime. And I said, hey, every Friday night, I'm hanging out at, uh, on the border in uh, Arlington right by the Plars Mall. Why don't you come by, drink a couple margaritas with us, and uh, maybe eat some bacon-wrapped shrimp or something like that, and we'll just say hi and, and get together. So we did that, and I met him, and he met my wife, and, you know, we found some like-minded individuals not far away. So that's going to be a topic we'll touch on a bit today, and uh, kind of came through the Internet. Uh, but Brian's a web designer by trade, so we share some commonalities there as well, but he cares enough about what's going on out there to put together a site that's designed to be a resource for people that want to uh, to be more prepared, sort of like the Survival Podcast, but a much bigger focus on you know the active tactical stuff. Uh, never uh, ended up being a Navy SEAL, but he went through buds, and uh, you know so he's got that behind him. He's got some good military friends. He's got some really kick-ass videos on YouTube showing some uh, some tactical driving uh, activities, uh, like making uh, high-speed uh, J turns and uh, basically moonshiner turns and things like that. Really, really cool site. So I suggest you check it out. And uh, so, Brian, I promised you uh, a little plug. There's your plug. Let's get on with the show. Okay, so the first question that I got is what are some good medicinal plants to grow around your house and as part of your garden and things like that? And, and the reality is this is something I actually have quite a bit of knowledge on, but my knowledge is not the way that it is with most of these other things. In other words, you can ask me a question about just about anything we talk about here, and I can rattle things off. Um, I know the plants to grow. But the big thing about herbal medicine is it really is a science. It's not just, okay, you have a headache, so instead of taking an aspirin to sun are available, let's make a tea out of some white willow bark. That is a technique. That will work. That is a good augmentation for aspirin. Most of the things that you do with herbal medicine, when you really get it down to a medicinal level, where you're actually being beyond just some, some relieving of acute symptoms is formulaic. And what I mean by that is you actually have to do mixtures of different plants in certain ratios in certain ways and prepare them at certain levels. So my issue with that is it's pretty hard for me to uh, remember all of those things and confidently give them to you when it involves putting something in your body. With that said, I'm going to try to do a show very soon where I talk about that very subject with several ideas, and I'm going to give you guys a book that I rely on a lot uh, for that type of thing, and uh, we'll do a whole show on herbal medicine. Short answer to the question, though, here are some that I think everybody should grow. They pretty much can do no harm uh, in any type of use, and they have uh, quite a bit of ability to relieve those acute symptoms we were talking about. One is chamomile. Another one is peppermint. The third is uh, purple coneflower. This is also known as echinacea. Okay, uh, lavender and aloe. 
Uh, aloe is great for burns, stings, bites. Lavender is actually fairly soothing, uh, made into a tincture for burns uh, and bites and things like that. Echinacea is one of the greatest immune bo- boosters known to man, and you're better off with echinacea from your backyard than off of some shelf uh, that's been, uh, you know, processed and what have have you and there's a lot of ways to use the whole herb and it is uh, it's a beautiful flower in the garden it attracts beneficial so why not grow your own peppermint is very useful for a lot of things but one of the biggest things that it's good for is if you have somebody with an upset stomach a little bit of a pepper fresh peppermint tea will often take away nausea upset stomach almost immediately as long as it's not from like a, a diarrhea type episode or something like that if it's just a typical Stomach ache nausea thing. It's it's very good for that. As is chamomile, and then chamomile and peppermint combined together in a tea are great to help you sleep. So those uh, those are some great medicinals. They also are all great plants for the garden as a whole. Let me come back to you with a full show on some more uh, complex methodologies with herbs. And uh, let's go ahead on to the next question, which is, what should a person that's uh, on long term medication do, especially if it's a medication that's hard to store or hard to get a significant quantity into storage of because doctors don't tend to release it. Uh, This is a question I get just about every time I do an interview. And it's a question I don't really have a great answer for and it may be because there isn't a great answer. Um, We tend to look down our noses at technology sometimes in the survivalist community, independence and things like that, Uh, mainstream media, mainstream medicine, mainstream industry, all of these things. The reality is that for every bad thing that that each of these groups do, they do some equally good things. And in some cases, they do some better than good things. And the medical industry is a perfect example. I, I, I have real problems with the medical industry as a whole, but the fact that they have figured out how to isolate, prepare, and make available in proper dosages insulin for diabetics to keep them alive is a uh, has kept many people with us that would not be and has made the quality of their lives much better than it would have been for much longer and uh, diabetes was a you know not type 2 but type 1 diabetes was a condition that not so long ago and I mean not so long ago at all was always fatal eventually and it's not the case anymore because of things like insulin. And then there's people with heart medications and things like that. Some medications are such that do you really need them or are you on them because it makes sense from an overall standpoint? In other words, your, 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 your overall health is maintained better because you're on them. And it improves your quality of life, but you wouldn't die without them. And some of those you can wean off them. That said, you need some kind of a supply uh, on hand to go through a weaning off period. A lot of medications that you could remove yourself from, you can't just stop. It's dangerous to just stop. They have to go through a kind of a down cycle. So one of the things you may want to discuss with your doctor is a downward cycle. What would I do if, for some reason, I couldn't get any medication, I had 30 days left, that's all that I had, what would be the way for me to take, what, what would you do with those 30 days worth of dosages maybe to make them last 60 days and, and taper me off to zero? Is it even an option? And discuss these things with your doctor. How much of my medication can I uh, keep for myself? Insulin has to be refrigerated. That's another challenge for diabetics. And I hate to say this, but there are people with certain medical conditions that if we ever have a full-blown shit hit the fan, all resources down, they're going to die. 
And if that's you, I, I, I hate saying that, but I've gotten this question so often, I have to be honest with my answer about it. If you get into the situation where a person that's completely dependent for life on a synthetically manufactured medication that won't be available anymore, then that person is in a position where the only thing that can save them is their own immune system or whatever is wrong kicking back in or God. And that's one of the harsh realities that we face. So all I can say is I would discuss it with your doctor. I would get as much of a supply as you can. I would explain your concerns. What if I can't? And I would say that any doctor out there should reasonably be okay with putting up a 30-day supply of any medication, keeping just an additional 30 days on hand so that when I get my next month's worth of medication, I put that in the storage and pull the prior months out. Um, some people are on medication require, you know, uh, administration through IVs. I've heard, from, and I've gotten this question different ways from several people over the last week. And, and one person's on IV medication, and that, that's another one of the situations. I can't answer that for you. You really have to discuss that with your doctor. And um, all I can say is that it would probably make sense if I were going to take this to a geography thing is, can you find a a city that has maybe the least likely to go into total meltdown that also has modern medical facilities and maybe that's a better place to live? But I really don't know. I don't have a great answer for that question. That's one of those things that you know, it's like asking a person, well, what do you do if a nuclear weapon goes off 15 feet away from you? You turn into a brilliant flash of light. You know, and you're gone. There are situations that we can't fix. And unfortunately, I think, not for all people on maintenance medication, but for some that are highly dependent on highly specialized medicines, uh, if we ever have that complete breakdown, it will be like a bomb going off next to them. And all I can say is do everything you can to mitigate that circumstance. And I'm sorry I don't have a happier answer for that. Let's take another question. Someone called me, or didn't call me, actually emailed me and asked me about planting around septic systems, and specifically planting over the leach field uh, with vegetables, and what were my thoughts on that? It's generally not advisable. It's uh, usually a bad idea because there is the potential for contamination, and it is not the same thing as people who take and compost human waste. Composted human waste is completely different from fresh septic waste going through a leach field. Eventually, that stuff breaks down to a completely harmless form, but while it's there and while it's leaching through... There is a great potential for infection, diseases, bacteria. You don't want to grow anything that you're going to eat that will touch the ground in a leach field. At the end of a leach field, far out to the end, you could grow maybe dwarf fruit trees or something like that. I personally don't even really think that it's worth it. What's generally advisable, though, is to plant over your leach field with uh, ornamental flowers, perennials, things like that, with with shallow root systems. Uh, That'll help protect it. It'll avoid continuously mowing over it because it'll be basically a field of flowers. It'll be pretty. It'll bring in uh, beneficial insects, beneficial birds, and stuff like that. It'll help the process of of everything, but just 
you really should not plant uh, food crops over a leach field, in my opinion. I know people will tell me that they've done it and nobody's ever got it, and that's fine. General recommendation, don't do it. Uh, the other thing is keep trees away from your leach field. They can grow, the root systems can grow into your leach field and uh, cause damage to it. And generally, the, the cost of a leach field is far more expensive than the cost of the tanks. So I just would not do that if I were you. That's the uh, easy answer. And I know if you have a small piece of land, uh, you know, a relatively small piece of land, that that may be a significant portion of your piece of land. Use that to grow all of your flowers and ornamentals and things like that. Make that an area for that. The moist ground will be useful for that. It will help reduce the potential for oversaturation and other things. And, uh, you know, that, that's, that's really all I can give you on that one. Next question I have is, uh, are there any issues with backwashing your pool near your garden? Will, you know, will the pool water cause any damage to your garden? Well, I wouldn't want to dump the water straight into the garden, that's for sure, just because uh, as you backwash your pool, the water's quite forceful and can do some erosion issues there. But overall, not really. There is chlorine in the water, but there's chlorine in your uh, city water that people water their plants with every day, and generally it's not enough to cause them harm. I assume you're not back uh, backwashing your pool on a daily basis, so that's really not much of an issue either. Um, I don't think that it makes sense to maybe use the water specifically for irrigation uh, unless you were to be pumping it off to some place and giving it time to dechlorinate. And that's something that I've thought about. If I were going to be in my home long term, I might actually set up some sort of a cistern uh, that allows for dechlorination and take, because it's a significant amount of water that's basically wasted and goes into runoff uh, through my backyard when I backwash my pool. The other question came was what about the, the DE or dimetaneous earth uh, that this person's filter uses? Some of that gets out. Is that any kind of a problem? Nah, people use DE in their uh, gardens as an organic method of pest control. Uh, the, the only thing that's going to happen with some DE out there is it may kill some of your pets vicariously. So uh, I, I really wouldn't worry about the DE at all. I would worry about constantly having uh, highly chlorinated water dumped into a leach field of a septic system. Uh, that can be an issue. So you want to you know, set up your backwash from your pool so it doesn't wash directly into your septic leach field, kind of joining two questions together. And I would try to do what I could to avoid some of the uh, the excessive uh, irrigation, uh, you know, uh, accidental irrigation of a garden, but I wouldn't overstress it. If you're using raised beds, then most of the uh, backwash pool water should run off your surrounding landscape and, and not even end up absorbed by your raised bed systems, especially if you keep your crops relatively well irrigated so that those mounds are not sucking water uh, as it's running past. So don't overthink that one. Don't worry about it. But it's a good question. Another guy asked me, basically the way I could sum up this question, it was kind of long, but could you talk about what it would be like if we had a 50% shit hit the fan instead of a full shit hit the fan? In other words, what he's saying is what if – what if people still were expected to go to work, at least the jobs that were still available? Infrastructure was still basically in place, but there was wide-scale rioting and looting, martial laws declared, 
25% of the population is unemployed against their will. You know, we have a real civil disorder breakdown, but, you know, the bank's still sending the mortgage payments to you and things like that, and, and, and your boss still expects you to get to work, even though you might have to drive through riots to get there. And, and you know, what if we were in that situation? What, what would that be like? What should we do about it if we get there? How likely is it? That type of thing. And on one hand, i got to tell you, I think if we go that far, it's temporary. And it, it's temporary in a bad way. I think if we get to that point, <clears throat> it's a very short-term bridge to complete and total breakdown. Because once that happens, it starts a spiral that we, we really would have a hard time pulling back out of without completing, you know, kind of the death row. I mean, when you think about it that way, think about, Okay, 25% of people are unemployed, riots. <clears throat> a lot of people are going to say, I'm not coming to work. I'm just not coming. And the hell with the house, and I'm, I'm going to bail, and I'm going to go live with Uncle Joe who has a paid-off farm up in Idaho and has had it forever. There will be a lot of people that would double up. And once that, that process kind of begins, are people giving up, people quitting, and just going, i got to get away from this, it just makes it worse. And as it gets worse, more people go. And as it gets worse, more people... And eventually, that would spiral us down into full-scale shit at the fan. I think that scenario is very unlikely nationwide. If anything gets that bad nationwide, look out, we're going all the way. I think that scenario is highly probable regionally. Okay, and what I mean by that is that's pretty much how New Orleans was after Hurricane Katrina. And the surrounding area around there, and let's not forget people in Alabama and Mississippi that really got beat the hell by Katrina too, that everybody ignored because they didn't loot and steal from people. And they didn't stand on rooftops and wait to be rescued. They still lost everything. And after they lost everything, there was still lawlessness. It just wasn't as sensational as what went on in New Orleans. So that whole region was impacted by a storm that resulted in that. But there's other reasons that can happen. I, You know, there's parts of Detroit that people would argue today are already that way, but I can see Detroit going into a total disarray, downward spiral, if some things don't really change, if people don't kind of take control of that city and turn it around and stop, you know, just say Detroit is going to do something different than, than auto. You know, if that comes back, great, but that's going to be one thing. If Detroit doesn't do, let's say, what Houston and Dallas did uh, many years ago, it wasn't that long ago that Houston and Dallas were almost completely dependent on the oil industry. And when the oil industry went bust, both of these cities uh, really, really took it hard. So at that point, they had a decision. They could let their cities continue to decay or they could diversify. And both went heavily into financial, medical, technology, telecom. They didn't get rid of oil, but they diversified what the city focused on and what it tried to bring in as industry. Dallas focused, started to focus more even on aviation. Built DFW Airport, expanded that capability, not just for people to come to the city to visit or to do business, but actually to have commercial capabilities. Expanded multiple small airports to do maintenance on, on aircraft. So... Those are two cities that went through it with a different industry, and that's what Detroit's going to have to do now. And if they don't, honestly, that city will turn into a complete disaster for financial reasons. I really believe that. And there's cities all over and reasons all over the United States where different factors can affect that 50% breakdown. The, the, the good
good side of that is you can get support from a point of safety, and you can go to a point of safety. So I think that that is why having the bug out location type uh, of planning is a great idea. And to also just, you know, be situationally aware. Pay attention to what the hell is going on around you. Don't be caught like, oh, gee, now there's a riot here, when you could have seen the buildup for the past 30 days. And you just ignored it and you just kept going to work on that train or in your car or whatever it is every day. Pay attention, uh, I think is a big thing. Now, what if it did happen, Ashley? What if I'm wrong? What if, let's say, we had a big, bad, bad, bad flu pandemic, and we went through partial quarantines in certain areas, certain areas are open, destroys the economy even worse, but because it's understood what's going on from the beginning, because everything's being done to try to prop it up, it does halfway prop it up. What do we have to deal with then? Well, we have to deal with possibly some jackbooted thugs from our government telling people what they can and cannot do, and I think one of the best ways to deal with that is to be inconspicuous with what you're doing. In other words, if they tell you to give up your guns, don't go out in the street and say, this is my gun and I'm not going to give it up. Say, I don't have any guns. Or, you know, when they show up, hand them your $50 beat-up bolt-action Mossberg shotgun and go, here's my gun. <laughs> and just keep your mouth shut. I think that's, you know, if we ever ended up in that situation, because I don't want to be defenseless, and I know most of the people who listen to the show don't want to be defenseless, especially in that scenario. I don't see that happening again short term uh, because of what happened in the backlash from when they did it in New Orleans. But 10 years from now, it's very plausible that we could end up there. Um, I don't see this, this people, again, I have people asking this question, not the, the guy that I'm specifically answering, but versions of this, well, if they start rounding us up and putting us in FEMA camps. They're not going to round you up and put you in FEMA camps. Oh, for the love of God, let that go. Please. Okay? If you're going to get rounded up and put in any camp, it's because you're going to go out in the street and try to play Red Dawn, and then they are going to put you in a special camp. It's called San Quentin. Or Rikers Island. Or Pampa here in Texas. Or Huntsville. That's the camp you're going to go to if you go out and you act stupid and you try to play New Patriots or something like that in the street. But this, 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 this camp roundup stuff, folks. If you're waiting for that here, wrong show. Go somewhere else. You're not going to get that from me. But we could end up in a place with martial law. You know, stay in your homes. Again, though, what do you do for this? You know, the stuff that we've always been saying to do for this. Understand, we could end up in a place like that. There's no malice involved. This, let's say, and I think it's a long shot that this flu comes back and it's really deadly. The swine flu. But it could be any flu. It could be any disease that's really a pandemic. Not this bullcrap, overhyped, media bullshit, World Health Organization nonsense we just went through, but the real deal. The government will lock you down in your home, so say stay the hell there. Why? So you don't die. So, and so if you're going to die, you don't spread to somebody else, and they don't die. Quarantine is the only effective method for controlling disease. So what do you have to have? Food in your home, money saved up to pay your bills with. Right? I mean, those are your, your two biggest issues there. So what do you do? You do what you've always done. Save money. Create redundancies in your systems of support. Have supplies on hand to support yourself if you can't leave the house. And if you could take the extra step and have a more secure remote location that's well-stocked, ready to go to, be prepared to do that as well. 
Uh, those are the only things I can say about that scenario. And then the other thing is, put the foil hat away, stop looking for the black helicopters, and let go of the death camps. Just, it's not reality. And if you want to be a survivalist, focus on what's most probable, what's most likely, and what you can actually do something about by taking personal individual action. Another guy asked me a question. This is a good one. He says, uh, what if, um, what if you don't have a bug out location? You live in kind of suburbs or a city, and you don't really have anybody anywhere nearby that you can rely on. You don't have any friends that you would trust to go live with. Even if you do have some friends that are not open to the fact that this could even be an issue, you basically have no place to go, and you're stuck with what you have, your home. Uh, Step one. Make it as useful to yourself as possible. Even in a suburban lot, put in as much ability to produce your own food as possible. Store four to six months or more of food, whatever you're comfortable with. Store water. Water is so easy to store when you don't need it. You turn the faucet and water comes out. Uh, I've had a lot of questions about, well, will water go bad? Water never spoils unless there's something in the water that spoils. In other words, if you have bacteria, disease, free water, there's nothing in the water. It's pure water today, and you seal it up so that nothing can get into it, and you store it for a 100 years, it's still good. It may not taste very fresh, but it only goes bad if it's open to air or there's something in it. And there has to be something in it that's able to to be fed so it can multiply and become bad. If it was good today, there has to be something in there for it to be bad tomorrow or something has to get in it for it to be bad tomorrow. So make sure you store food and water. Make sure you do have evacuation plans. If you have nobody you can rely on, then you better figure out how you can rely on yourself if you have to get out of there. Because one day, knock, knock, knock on the door, you got to go. And you got what you're telling me is you have no place to go. So that may be a situation where you know we say don't bug out to the national forest or the state parks or whatever. That's true in a like total shit hit the fan. But if um, one neighborhood in Dallas is. Uh, is evacuated, cruising out to one of the state parks that's not that far from your work, setting up your uh, your little camping trailer or tent or what have you, with enough gear to take care of yourself and pay, what, 9 to $18 a month for most of these places for a site, or 9 to $18 a day for most of these places for a site, rather than $100 a night for a hotel room, uh, to get by for two weeks, use the shower facilities and things like that until you can go back to your neighborhood for whatever reason you were you know asked to evacuate. Not a bad thing. Not There's nothing wrong with that, and you're not going to be overrun with other people doing it because most people are too clueless to do it. They're going to be either going to a shelter, to a hotel room, or to a relative's. So, you know, having at least some level of camping capability, if you have no one to rely on, is probably a good idea. I would really look at at least a small travel trailer or even a teardrop trailer if you're in that situation because it's hard to carry enough uh, to support yourself when you're just, you know, with a pickup truck. And having a small trailer allows you to put a lot of stuff together, uh, keep it well stocked, keep it well organized, and be able to get out quickly. Uh, I would also say if you have no one you can rely on, then focus on that being a problem. Don't accept it. Uh, Look for the ability to develop relationships uh, that will allow you to uh, to kind of reach out beyond what you have now and find like-minded people that you can uh, you can rely on. See see not an alternative solution, but a direct solution to the problem.
So, so find out, reach out, create networks, join groups on, you know, meet up, make regional connections in our form, do whatever you can, but start to look for other people. And odds are you know some people, so start to maybe drip on them a little bit with some with some factual information about the threats that we're under. Get them to ask you, well, could I come stay with you? Yeah, that's one of the great things. There's a lot of times people, I don't want to tell anybody that I'm a prepper. Because if I tell them I'm a prepper, they're going to want to come stay with me, and I can't support them. All right, And then you're like, but I want a place where I can go if, if, if I have to leave my location. So you don't want somebody coming to you, but you want to be able to go to somebody else. And I know that when people say it, they're not thinking that way. What they're actually thinking is, well, God, if I went somewhere else, if I came to your house, I would bring stuff with me. I'm prepared. The reason I won't take you in is you're going to show up with your wife, your two kids, and a dog, and one bag of dog food, and nothing for yourself, and say, can we stay? So... One of the great things about telling people you do trust, friends, family, things like that, hey, look, you know, one of the things I do is I actually have a plan for if disaster strikes with a little bit of, you know, don't tell them I've got, you know, six months of food, obviously, because they're going to think you're crazy because they're, they're new to this. I've got a little bit of extra food. I have evacuation plans in place. I have some a little bit of cash set aside, not a lot, just a little bit, you know, just in case something happens and, and we end up in a situation where uh, we're kind of without support for a few days. I don't want to be like one of those people you see on TV. I see how they react to it. And a lot of times they'll, they'll say, yeah, I've thought about that. And you go, well, what would, just ask, what would you do? And usually they'll say, I, I don't know. And a lot of times, especially family will say, well, if you're prepared, we could come stay with you. And that gives you the opportunity to say, and what would you bring with you? If it was going to be a month, and you were going to have to stay with us for a month, and, and once you got there, we can't just go to the store and buy some more food. And you think I'm going to be able to support you for a month, you're wrong. I don't have enough for all of us for a month. So I'm all for you coming to stay with me. What would you bring with you? And they probably won't know, and they'll think about it. And that might send them down the path to becoming like-minded through their own choice. You, you know, one of the things we, we always talk about, like-minded individuals, like-minded individuals. But are they like-minded individuals by choice? Or have we convinced them that they need to be like-minded individuals? Give people kind of a path, and, uh, and they'll generally start, you know, kind of walking down it on their own. Got another question from a guy. He's got a pretty good bug out location. He's got a deep well, has a, um, a manual hand crank for the well if the power goes out, so they'll never be without water completely. But he has no open water, no ponds, no creeks, no streams, nothing like that, which he thinks would be very useful for a bit larger scale agriculture. And do I think that open water is necessary uh, for sustainable agriculture? My answer is no, it is not necessary. It is sure nice. It's sure a great idea. And even small ponds, and I'm talking ponds about the, you know, not the depth necessarily, but the size of an average passenger car, uh, are, are great for bringing in um, beneficials like frogs and, and other animals that, uh, that frequent wetlands uh, to help do pest control on your property. But for irrigation purposes, no, you don't need it. 
especially if you'll practice drip irrigation. Um, and there's a lot of ways to do that. Let's say that you were in a situation where you had to rely on backup solar or manual uh, uh, manual uh, usage to uh, to run your pump. And you say, well, I don't want to sit there and, and, and have to pump water uh, to the plants every day. Well, one of the things you could do is set up some tanks and use elevation to distribute your irrigation. So you'd run a line to a tank. And then you would pump a certain amount of water to that tank over a certain amount of period, and then that would build up a reserve of that water in that tank that could be used daily for drip irrigation until it's depleted, and then maybe set up some rain catch around that tank as well so that you're not always having to replenish it with the energy that you're using, either manually, solar, or what have you. So can it be done? Absolutely. And it's been done for countless centuries. People have done... Uh, agriculture, especially when you're talking about enough agriculture to support, say, a family of four or six, even a family of eight. Um, if, if you want to run a farm uh, that's going to support you know, an income for yourself and feed hundreds of people and be a supplier to a local market or something like that, you need to have some you know, method of irrigation beyond things uh, like uh, you know, a little bit of drip irrigation here and there, but th- that can be scaled up as well. I think that uh, the big thing to though understand is what takes away the need for so much irrigation is large-scale permaculture uh, on your entire property, building up the entire property to where everything is either a footpath or a system that's growing something and producing something and having massive amounts of organic uh, material on the ground, deep, huge, thick beds. It'll produce a soil that's like a sponge. And even in a place where you maybe get 10 to 20 inches of rain a year, uh, you won't even need irrigation except in the hottest, driest periods of time for the plants that, that most need irrigation. So you can get around that, but it comes a lot from design and uh, having a plan from the very beginning. Okay, I got a multiple choice question. Which concerns me most, swine flu, the economy, North Korea, terrorism, or something else? And I would say that Let's start off with what doesn't concern me very much right now. Uh, North Korea doesn't concern me very much right now. Uh, Not at all, in fact. I think North Korea is being overhyped and overblown, and it's going to be used as an excuse for additional military activity. It may even be used as an excuse for military activity that's not directly related to North Korea. Uh, I'm going to do a show on North Korea at some point, or maybe dedicate more of a show to the subject of North Korea. She's got a very interesting comment on the blog that I I won't go into today because it's too long. Uh, But let me just say I think the North Korea threat is overblown. I don't think that even Kim Jong-il... Uh, really wishes anything uh, bad for the average American citizen. I think that we've created a boogeyman there. And uh, I don't think the guy's a nice guy. I don't think he runs his country well. I think he's pretty evil as people go. But I don't think his focus is on Joe in Iowa in a cornfield. I don't think he cares about you, Joe. All he cares about you at all. And I don't think his intent is to launch an EMP attack on America. I'd be much more concerned about the nuclear weapons that Pakistan has that are fully deployable and fully operational than I would about what North Korea has. 
And one day we'll talk about nuclear proliferation as well and why all these countries are so hell-bent on getting nuclear weapons. Uh, some people may think I'm anti-American when I give my opinion on that, but uh, it's not. It's just reality. Swine flu. Not that worried about swine flu, especially right now. I'm worried about pandemic as a whole. A lot. A great deal. I think it is only a matter of time. I don't know or even think really that this latest uh, flu is the, is the one that's going to get us, so to speak. Um, but I think sooner or later we are going to have to have some kind of a major disease threat. And it will probably be something like swine flu. And what I mean by that is... Everybody was worried about bird flu, bird flu, bird flu. This swine flu thing came out of left field, out of nowhere, and all of a sudden it's here, and it's present, and it's real, and people died from it, and oh my God, wow. And uh, I do think he was overhyped and over-sensationalized. And uh, a lot of stuff was made out of it that maybe really didn't need to be made out of it. But I do think it is a good indicator for us of the way that something that's like totally not thought about today cannot just be in some far corner of the world and we got to watch it. They can just be here. Almost instantly, almost overnight. That's how diseases manifest themselves. Um, how worried am I that... Uh, the swine flu will come back this fall and be much more deadly and much more prevalent. Not real worried. But it is something I would keep an eye on. Uh, the next one was terrorism. I'm not that worried about terrorism. Not the way that it's presented to us. I think that the terrorism threat is overhyped and overblown. I think there are people out there that would do us harm, and they mean to do us harm with big, large-scale attacks. But let me ask you a question. If there, and this is another one. These people might go, Jack, are you, are you for the terrorists? No, I'm not for the terrorists. But just think about it this way. If there were as many people out there that want to do harm to us as they say there are, if the threat was as big as they say it is, if, if it was as real as they say it was, and if it's as easy to get people into this country that shouldn't be here as we know it is, then why would we just see a focus on things like bringing down aircraft, blowing up buildings, blowing up subways, all these high-end bioterrorists? I think those threats are real. Don't get me wrong. But I'm saying if, there were, if the numbers of people actually intent on doing harm to us here were such that we needed all the, the stuff that we're told we need and all the warfare that we're told we need, why wouldn't you think that as an operative, let's say I was a terrorist operative. This is what I would do. If I were a terrorist operative, a Muslim extremist wanting to bring down the United States, I would work real hard to get about 100 people into this country, fellow Muslim extremists. And I wouldn't worry about home-growing them or any of this crap the FBI is telling us. I just get hardcore. They're out there. We already have them. Let's not grow them. We'll just import them. So we get them into the country one way or another, get them into Mexico and have them walk across the border. All right? That's how easy it would really be. Put them on a boat and land off the coast of South Carolina. Carolina, for God's sakes, and walk up on a Myrtle Beach in swim trunks, and no one would even look at you, because that's how free and open our society is. But I would get these people into the country. I would give each one of them individual missions. They wouldn't even know about the other people out there. And I would give them simple things that anybody could do, like here is uh, $1,000, here's an old beat-up car, and uh, here's a bunch of rags. I want you to go around and burn stuff. Buy gasoline and just set shit on fire. In cities and towns, randomly, all you don't. Here's a map. Go your own way. Goodbye. Get another guy. I want you to do the same thing, but I want you to set forests on fires. Right? Here's another guy. You give him some poison. I want you to go start poisoning food. 
right? Here's a little hypodermic needle. I want you to go start injecting shit into bananas in, in grocery stores. And you just have a hundred people doing random crap like that. I won't keep going because I don't want to lay a plan out for how to do this, for God's sakes. But if these people are smart enough to build nuclear weapons and try to get them into our country to kill us, don't you think they're smart enough to figure out the type of thing that I just said? And to wage a war on us, let's say the way that the IRA waged their war against the British in Northern Ireland. Constantly, every day, hitting something. You know, the people that are over in Iraq right now, in Afghanistan, fighting our soldiers with IEDs. If, if they're really trying to come here and kill us, then why don't we have them going off all around us? Because our government's so competent, they've prevented it. Really? Do you really believe your government's that competent? Even if you were a big supporter of Bush, and you say he kept us safe. He kept us safe from that, or he kept us safe from another airliner going into another building? Those are two totally different scenarios, requiring two totally different levels of support. If you just wanted to cause disruption and bring this country to its needs... It would be very, very simple for a true terrorist organization to get done. Some guy running around with a hunting rifle shooting electrical transformers could shut down big pieces of the electrical grid in a couple hours. There's so many things that could be done, just vandalism level things, to cause disruption. But none of it happens. Why? Because the threat's overblown, folks. I'm sorry. Um, The economy. The economy is probably my biggest one out of that group. Because we seem hell-bent on making it worse. And it almost seems like we're at a point where the government's decided it's actually advantageous to burn the economy to the ground. And I don't know if that's part of the tinfoil hat guys to their new world order or not. All I'm telling you is that it doesn't look like our government's actually doing anything to get us out of the economic problems that we're in. It actually looks like our government is doing some things to create a short-term blip that looks better so that everybody will shut up about it, put their head back down and stop paying attention and go back to work. But they're setting us up for an even bigger failure in the future. That we're going to see, you know, we had the dot-com bubble, the real estate bubble, the credit bubble, oil bubbles, bubble, bubble, bubble. We're about to have a stimulus bubble. It's going to be bigger than anything that you've ever seen in the history of mankind. And that bubble is going to look really good. I keep telling people this. You know, I have to even differ with Gerald Salenti when he says it's over, it's endgame. No, it's not. There's one big party. And then we might be at endgame. And all you have to do is look at what's being done and realize that that's going to happen. And where, where could a guy like Gerald Salenti be right? The rest of the world decides not to play the game anymore and pulls out. Leaves us to rot and wither on the vine. It, it, that's the big thing. They talk about downgrading the U.S.'s credit rating and things like that. If the Chinese, the Indians, the Europeans, if everybody just walks away from the United States and says, you guys made this mess, we're going to clean it up as best we can for ourselves, screw off. We're done with the dollar. We're done with you. Goodbye. Um, it could be endgame now. The reality, though, is I don't think that most of the world can afford to do that right now. The Chinese can't afford to do that right now. So what the world wants to do is fix the problem. And then when everything looks good, they want to pull their piece out and fix their country and become independent from this mess that, that you know, I don't, I'm not being anti-American here. I'm being any government and any fed This mess for the world that the United States has made. They want to pull themselves out of it. 
and then turn to us as a people and say, we're not blaming you, but you let these guys do this. They're your people. You fix it, because we're out of here. And I think it's the U.S. and Britain that will go down together because we run the uh, we run this, this, this economic system, you know, together with, with the Brits. So that's my biggest concern right now. And I know that was a long answer, and I know it might have uh, even hacked a few people off, but, folks, it's just the way I see it. And, and, you know, the next time that somebody tells you that terrorists are out to get us, just ask yourself, if I was willing to die for Allah, and I was willing to kill millions of innocent people, and I wanted to, to bring down the United States, how many damaging things could you easily do with the resources that are available to you? And then ask yourself, all these terrorists that are out there, do they need anthrax to cause us harm? And if they're not causing us harm, what does that tell us about the actual body count, the total number of individuals that actually represent the threat? Uh, last question for today. What are my top goals? What are the things that I most want to accomplish for myself in the near future? Um, this is probably something I could do a whole show on, but trying to keep it short and wrap the show up. We're at like over 46 minutes now. Um, one is I really want to make sure that I get to a point where I can make this show, uh, at least for the income that I need, my primary source of income. I want to grow this show to a point where I have enough people listening, I have enough sponsorship, I have enough supporting members that I can at least pay my bills with the show. And I want to do that because it will create freedom in my life so that I can then create a lifestyle that I don't even need the money. And uh, that's really not that hard to do. What I've learned over the years about money is that if you use money properly and you set up systems that are productive for you, that you don't really need money anymore. But you need money to get there because we have uh, a cash-based economy. Our entire world is based on money and profit. And that that is used to create enslavement. And it is enslavement. And if you work for a living, as we all say we do, and you're $25,000 in credit card debt, and you have a mortgage that you can barely afford to make, and you have a couple of kids, and they're involved in all kinds of activities, and you have bills, 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 you are a slave. And it's not just an analogy for me. It's not just a way to wake people up. You are a freaking slave. You have no choice but to get your ass up and go work somewhere you don't want to go every single day for the rest of your life. And when you're too old to do the job anymore, they'll give you some pittance of a retirement in the form of Social Security, if that's even left, where you can live the rest of your days on bowls of porridge. You are a freaking slave. And I don't want to be a slave. And the way that you avoid being a slave is to figure it out before you become one. Unfortunately, I didn't do that. I was like most Americans. I, be, I put myself into slavery. I've gotten myself 99% out of it. My goals now are to complete the 1%. To get myself into a lifestyle that I really love that requires as little income as possible. And then to take uh, as much income as still is coming in as I can and use it in ways that I would call charitable. And 
again, I don't know if everybody would call them charitable, but I would call them charitable. If I set up a, let's say, a school to teach people how to do permaculture, to me that's pretty charitable. If the school turns a profit that's enough to pay the staff that's that's in that school, and that's all it's really done for, and I don't really benefit from it other than the contribution, um, then that's charitable to me. And, and my view of charity might be a lot different than writing a check to the uh, Salvation Army, but in my view, 80% of that money goes to pay salaries of people uh, that exist to, to give the money away and figure out who it is. So which one has greater impact on the world? So so that's my biggest goal, but that's kind of a long-term goal. My short-term goal, not happy with as much food as we have uh, stored up here in uh, the local location, so we're beefing that up by another 30 days. I'm doing that mainly because we moved a lot of our stuff up to Arkansas for a bug-out location uh, to make sure that that was where I wanted it. So when you're running two locations, you have to balance where you put your preps. And our view is long-term, if we ever got in a really long-term situation, that's where we would go. So it makes sense to put our, our larger time. But because of that, I'm no longer happy with what we have here. Uh, I want to learn a lot more about um, agriculture and permaculture design techniques. And I'm really I'm, you know buying materials. I'm studying. I'm supporting the organizations that do this. Uh, my goal is to be able to take my five acres and make it immensely productive because it's in a part of Arkansas that's not productive for anything. About the only thing that grows up there are Jerusalem artichokes and blackberries, uh, hickories and oaks. It is a tough, harsh environment, but it's been done in much harsher environments. And I know that if I can do that, I can create an example to other people uh, for sustainable living. Uh, so those are my goals, and they might be different than, I guess, maybe what was being thought of, like, you know, how much am I putting an emphasis on ammunition? How much on uh, on, on, on food supplies? More than just a little bit more uh, here for the, uh, the local area and things like that. But the reality is... The reason that I'm at this point in my life for these plans is because I've already done the basics. I'm not worried about more ammunition because I have ammunition and I have components. I'm not worried about more guns so much as other than just I kind of like some other ones because I think they're neat. Right, and I'd like them for shooting and collecting and investment, but I don't need any more guns, right? And I, you know, so I, I'm not real focused on that. I, I, we're pretty much we eat for 60 days easily here. I want it back to 90. We eat for six months up in Arkansas. I, I think we'll be okay in 99% of scenarios. So not much, you know, worried about that. We're saving money like mad right now because we've killed off all our bills. Every extra dollar is into the savings account. Um, so. It's a goal, but it's just active. It's going on. So the saving money is not so much a goal. It's just what I'm doing now because I've gotten past the point where everything was eating it up. So those are my goals, and hopefully they're not maybe for a lot of people what you can do too right now, but they're inspirational that, you know, my goal, maybe your goal is one day to have goals like that, to get to a point in life where that's what you can actually focus on because that's what I really want to do. I want to get to a point where I create so much self-sustenance uh, through my systems that I create for myself, that I have ownership and control and uh, stewardship over, that, that I really don't need anything. And then when I don't need anything, I want to take that to a spirit of giving back. And uh, hopefully that's a pretty noble goal, and hopefully uh, I've got somewhat of a guiding hand in getting it done. So that kind of wraps up the show today. This has been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
can scream and you can holler it really doesn't matter cause it all gets spent 